Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Achingly beautiful is the poetry of Robert Lashley. His rich mind and his wounded soul blaze in glory like never before, says one critic. His third book is Green River Valley, published by Blue Cactus Press in his hometown of Tacoma, which makes it a homecoming of sorts, though he lives in Bellingham. Despite that, there's Tacoma all over this book, as well as more of Uncle Mo, Big Mama, Aunt Virginia, and his homeboys. Robert was a 2016 Jack Straw Fellow, an Artist Trust Fellow, a Stranger Genius Award nominee, and is here via the magic of Zoom to talk about Green River Valley and his work. Robert, what a delight to have you in this way and to document this new book. I am very honored to be here. I have a tremendous respect for you and for your work and for your scholarship. Thanks, thanks, man, you're very kind. I think you read about 10 times more than I do, just to, just to set the record straight, but uh, and, you know, another thing you've talked about before, you've talked about many times before in interviews and in public readings and that, but tell us about how your mom and Uncle Mo provided the foundation for you to be a poet. My mom and my Uncle Mo, to this day, are the two most well-read um, people in poetry that I've ever known. My Uncle Mo lost his parents in 1927. And from 1927 until about 1936, he was raised as a sort of a bootlegger's adopted son. That bootlegger would give people an extra keg if they would give Moses Williams a book and one of those books in his journey was the golden um, slippers an anthology of Negro poetry that got him to be that got that put the poetry bug in him and from that he became a voracious reader and a voracious writer of poems from 1940 until 1944 until he came back from the war a different person one of my jobs as as a kid was to walk my uncle mo to the park when he felt good and in walking him he made poetry so glamorous he invite you in and he tell me these stories about how the Harlem Renaissance poets could used for, like use form in in different ways and used free verse in different ways. He had this very complex cosmology in regards to, that was very similar to open field. It was like open field gone to church. And in him talking about poetry, the, the poems that he loved to talk about were um, 
people like like Angela Well Grimke, Elizabeth Ward Grimke, Langston Hughes was huge because he was the one that was influenced by 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 Pound's use of breath in free verse. People that were very huge for him were also Gwendolyn Brooks and Margaret Walker's For My People, two books that were huge for me when I started out as, uh, off as a writer and still huge for me now. Um, my mother, the first two people who gave my mother any sort of familial love were my mom's exchange student best friend in high school and her father, Carmen Molina, now Mercy, and Antonio Molina. Antonio Molina was a remarkably elegant furniture salesman in Toluca. And because she loved them so much, she wanted to be immersed in their literary culture and in their in their in, in their culture, she wanted to pay respects. So like she would read me people like Gabriela Mistral and Pablo Neruda. Mistral was someone who was first translated in America by Langston Hughes. My mom and my uncle gave me this big literary world, and I'm very grateful for it. Fantastic. What an answer, Rich, uh, in personal myth and luminous details. And uh, I mean, you know, I can spend a whole hour just tracking follow-ups to that. That's just, that's just so amazing. And you've written about that. And when we do the post, I want to link to your medium piece that you wrote about your mom. That was very, very touching. And I made sure to hang on to the URL of that. One would think that you never left Tacoma when reading this book. Tell us why Tacoma is the town that continues to trigger poems and Bellingham, maybe not so much. My grandmother rescued my mom and gave her a bit of stability when I was nine years old. From about age six to age nine, 40% of the time we were homeless. And my mom put a stop to that. My, and my grandmother put a stop to that. She gave my mom a base. And my first and only sense of stability for a very long time was my grandmother's basement. And my grandmother, who ran a pool hall for 42 years, was, was kind of a, a cultural center for a lot of people in Tacoma. And so my sense of home, my only sense of stability was the classically conservative working class black Tacoma. That's the only place that made sense for me. And like, and when I left it for a very long time and when I didn't even think about poetry, nothing really made sense. Now I've, and when I wrote, when when I wrote poetry, and it, I just kept back, I kept going back, like the political movements, the sort of identity movements. No matter how much I wanted to like them, just didn't make as much sense to me as the 
the, the sort of cultural ecosystem that I knew in Black Tacoma. Bellingham has become a different town recently. I think that people are beginning to change. I think there are new people that are coming in. I think that, you know, towns, cities change and cultures shift. And I have to recognize that. That doesn't mean there aren't bad actors. There are bad actors everywhere. Um, I think that, um, that, I, that I can't write the sort of poem that a lot of people would want me to write in regards to just the sort of author, uh, authoritarian power poem just to hit somebody to needlessly hit them. But I want to see how the younger poets of color, I want to see what their work is. I want to see how the culture shifts because I think it's starting to shift and I think history is going very fast. Mm -hmm. One thing I hear the, uh, uh, the undertone there is uh, an aversion to rhetorical, to the rhetorical. My uncle once said that a poem should have light points, but not a start point. Mm -hmm. That he like he believed in things like automatic writing. Um, he believed a sort of very organic light touch form in editing, but he didn't like he believed that if you're going into a poem thinking of where thinking that you're going to write this subject you're going to go nowhere you don't let god in the room doing that and i believe that and i also i, I and i believe that that my history and the kind of the com like the complex narratives and the complex imagery that, that comes in my poetry that's centered around the city, that those can function as light points. Jack Spicer said, the muse is patient with truth and commentary as long as it doesn't get into the poem. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the, um, the community in Tacoma. It occurs to me to point out that African-American culture is a lot more conservative politically than we like to think. Now, given Trump has skewed all the politics, we're not talking about African-Americans being Trump fans necessarily. But 50 years ago, the black Republican uh, could have been a lot more common. Is, you see a lot of truth to that? I see, a tr I see a tremendous amount of truth to that and a tremendous amount of truth uh, that comes out recently because nine out of the 10 conversations that I've had since being vaxxed and getting the shot and coming back to Tacoma have been about, hey, Bobby, how you doing? So good to see you. You're writing. Lord have mercy. I hate Twitter. <laughs> classic. That's absolutely classic. Oh, man. Um, you know, you, you've evoked uh, the divine a couple of times now you've evoked open form and and uh, open uh, and field poetry and of course i think the source may be pound or maybe olson or william carlos williams or 
Denise Levertov or Duncan or an amalgam of those folks, which is really uh, uh, just a uh, New American poetry way of saying this is the way it's been for a long time. Rilke composed uh, in a received way. Uh, Cadman's hymn, the first poem in the English language, was written by uh, an illiterate, uh, what is he, shepherd or cowherd? So, um, so this is a very old way of composing, and you talk about letting God in the room, and I don't think uh, enough attention is uh, given to Char Charles Olson's line in Projective Verse where he talks about the single intelligence, which in 1950 or in 2021 is a nice way of saying you have to get beyond your ego and to something bigger than yourself. So um, can you talk a little bit about the role of the divine life force in your work and life? I will describe it as me sitting next to my grandmother and my grandfather and my uncle Mo and in morning Sunday morning service, the 8.30 Sunday morning service instead of the afternoon service. My uncle Mo and my grandfather were dark-skinned and they didn't have as much money. They weren't respected by the quote-unquote 11 o'clock Sunday afternoon service crowd in their sense of the divine was something a little more rooted a little a little a little more soulful a little more a little more spiritual than the kind of the flashy kind of synthetic kind of um and, and very modernly cruel religious service that was the afternoon service that was more about, you know, what God had given these upper middle class people than a sense of spirituality that didn't have any, that didn't have as, as much with, to do with the ego. And that had a lot of roots in history. And, and, and I, um, and I think about it, I think about like, and I'll, and I'll phrase it this way. If you listen to a modern gospel station, this is, a, this is a good thought experiment for people. If you listen to a modern gospel station for like 30 minutes, listen to how many songs are about I got the victory. I defeated someone. God is going to triumph over my enemies. God is going to conquer. It's if you the subtext to modern gospel and modern music is is so cruel, is so violent. And I think that has a lot to do with with the sort of prosperity gospel my grandfather the 101 he calls it the austerity gospel um and um i hope that wasn't rambling enough i hope that answered your question no no it's it's fascinating um i'm, I'm things that go through my mind are carl sandberg's to a contemporary bunk shooter my time as a uh, college level radio person working downtown Chicago, running the board on the weekend at WXFM for the Reverend Milton Brunson and, uh, and, and thoughts like that. Uh, just absolutely fascinating to be plunged back into that.
the next thing I wanted to talk about with some of your work, I'd like for you to read something and maybe something around the notion of nationhood. It comes up a couple of times in the first two poems of the book. So maybe reading the poem the next day and, and then a, a sense after how you use that phrase, or maybe it'll be evident when you read it on page 22. I will be glad to, 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 to get it up. Oh my, like my computer is failing me. I'll, I'll... You just want to read it from the book. Is that possible? Oh, I, I sold out of my books. <laughs> don't, make so me, don't make me read it, Robert. <laughs> I'll read it. I have it on me. It, it's online. I have it online. Okay. The next day, got it. Although I cannot hope to rest again. Although I cannot hope. Although I cannot hope rest from wavering between street profits. Lost boys tweaking in the corner store, in the moving traps of a hundred heroes' journeys, in schizoid twilight between father and motherlands, I do not wish to wish this shit. Fairies, visible and non, cross on sailor's shore. Third eye windows dance with suburb doors. Men speak of calling in leading in the smoke while the witches must work this morning. The beige fog stiffens among the noises. The lilacs are masked and the church bells echo and the tired spirit quickens to rest on a 27 bus. It quickens to forget the blood fight and the prodded symbol. The hotep forms in the ivory gates in a window spaced to rest on this bitter earth. The ghetto nerd's tension is between dying and rebirth. The distance from solitude where all tribes cross between the murked and green meridian. Where voices shaken from wild mouths drift away. To suffer oneself is to mock nationhood. To care and not to care as people run to their rocks. To suffer oneself is to be separated by the dividing lines from the corner to the sea. All right, beautiful. You know, this sounds like a Bellingham poem. After all that talk of Tacoma, this has this evokes Bellingham in my mind. There are Bellingham resonances. It's um I've tried to fight my own anger. Um, in 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 writing about nature, my own anger in writing about nature when I started wasn't constructive. Um, when I was bused to school, I would get up at four fifty in the morning and go past, you know, like all these beautiful um, houses and in in. in in beautiful like parks to go to school and then come back at night. And I, so I had this sort of idea that nature wasn't mine or that like, or that like places like in downtown Seattle or in downtown Tacoma or that the little parks like that were right across the street from or right next to the, um, 
the sea where cops would would hit you upside the head if you hung around too much. I had that sense that it wasn't mine. So I had to fight my own anger to try to, to, um, to create as honest and complex a picture. So the line, to suffer oneself is to mock nationhood, is the line I was referring to when I brought it up. Oh, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't know how my computer was muted. Sorry about that. Let me answer the question. I'd be glad to. Um, the idea that we are not a that I'm against tribalism. I think that I'm for culture, but the idea that that we're on a team. I think that my only my only to quote James Baldwin, my only team is the human being. And that's what I meant when regards to that line. Man, Baldwin is looking better than ever. <laughs> I mean, it's just so prophetic, so tapped in. Does the prophetic come from uh, the uh, allowing the divine into your life and into the poem? Of editing and listening to it and trying to listen to the spirits. Um, my grandmother um, was a huge music fan and she gave me Gil Scott Heron. And we both know Gil Scott Heron believed in something called the spirits. And that if you sit down and you listen to them and that they will give you something and it's to try to process it. Saturday night just ain't that special. <laughs> I love that. Everybody got a pistol. Everybody got a 45. The philosophy seems to be near as I can see. The day they give up theirs, I'll give up I'll mine. I'll give up mine. I love that so much. I saw Gil twice. There is um, there's a poem I want to talk about, Landscape with Aunt Virginia, page, well, it's on page 46 in your computer, I'm not sure, that's what she I'll get it right is. now. Landscape with Aunt Virginia is a poem that uses very direct language, and I would love it if you could read that and we could talk about it. I'd be glad to, I, I'm almost there. And, and uh, when I say the poem, I only give you the first four words of the title out of deference to the cultural I understand. Uh, okay. I will be glad to read the entire title. <laughs> Landscape with Aunt Virginia after she smacked the shit out of a nigga for macking at women at a funeral after Antigone's first monologue. If this is what the nigga thinking, then we shouldn't have placed his ass here. Not even ask the nigga to come. He made his choice to wear them plaid pants, not wash his ass, and slobber on that young girl. He can be what the fuck he wants away from my babies, but we got to bury this boy. And if he must come here looking like his Zulu name is Kemet with the fake gold chain neck, then I will say this ass whipping is holy. 
I shall lie down with the nigger in death and make him as dear to me as the porn and MMA bill he puts in his baby's name. It is the living, not the dead niggers, that make the longest demands, Bobby. Niggas die forever, but Negroes do as they like as the laws of God or love mean nothing to them in the scope of them getting some shit. With this, po with this poem, like I was reading Antigone again and I thought, oh, where have I heard this before? <laughs> and I'm like, I've heard some of these lines like before. And it, and it wasn't a, a sort of a, a recreation but it kind of reminded me of my homegirl Peanut's funeral when I was 17 years old. She she had passed away. And a lot of people were in so much pain, except Clyde. We were all crying because we were just kids. And, and Peanut was 19 years old. We was we were in the street, like, like just, we had been in the streets too long and we were just in so much pain, except Clyde. And Clyde was just hugging too much, trying to get too close. And my Aunt Virginia um, took the hard candy that she had in her purse and there is a there is a world to that that it can be seen in a, in a church elder's purse, church sister's purse. She took the hard candy that she had in her purse and she just put it together, and she beat his behind with it, and she dragged him outside, and everybody clapped, and a lot of. Miss Virginia and Miss Yalela, the church sisters in my neighborhood, they came from kind of the culture of the hilltop, um, the, 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 the hilltop action network and the hilltop action committee. In 1989, 1990, Hilltop was so bad, they had the, the two CBS documentaries on. And he, what happened was that there were a group of people that were, were going to do everything they could to, to try and lower the crime rate in the, in the neighborhood, and they didn't care how, who they offended. They didn't care who, who, they, who they were allies with. Hilltop had to, they did everything they could to make the crime stop. So these sort of profane, like hard, real sisters, those were heroes to me. And those were are, are, are close or near to the very center of the people who I write for. Right. That poem seems to me to come very much out of William Carlos Williams, where he said, you know, the poetry to him was 
the Polish immigrant women that he heard, uh, you know, overheard walking down the street. When I taught an outlet class in Tacoma, I taught William Carlos Williams. And to not, um, and to maybe get into something controversial, um, forgive me, I had like nine kids and they wanted to know, they wanted to go through 20th century poetry. They wanted to go through the canon. They wanted to go through things that they weren't taught when they were in college. We put William Carlos Williams poems about sisters up with Amiri Baraka's poems about sisters. And we put them, and I, and I put them all together. And I asked them, who's who? Who treats black women better in their poems? Eight to one, William Carlos Williams won. So I have a lot of respect for WCW. Yeah, yeah, that, that very much shows. There's a technique you use in this book where there are words written in italics in green ink. Now, it comes across to a reader like me as a sidebar or a parenthetical thought. Maybe you could read a poem or two with that um, technique in it. Bob's Barbecue Pit Nightscape is page 47 or Why Uncle Mo on the next page. Tell us that, and then maybe we'll have some sense, uh, even though we don't see it on the screen, those who have the book can read along and, and get a sense of this technique you use. Let me, um, let me, I'll read Bob's. The side fryer crackles against the evening ice currents. The wind's benign razors straighten the city block as the Sunday nightline forms. Hambone, Hambone, where you been? Under uneven December spice clouds, the table is the unseen star. Constellations of the side fryer appear then disappear by the smoker's sodium sky. Hambone, Hambone, where you been? Beside the inside cook's alchemy, the wall painting mirrors, Blues and yellows coordinate with rack Sunday dresses. Red and gray lapels make priceless the Sunday best. Tones illuminate and watercolor witness, shape, movement, and right. The procession braces from another blast. They rub their hands in the ice drafts to get their daily meat and bread. They put their palms toward each other, then in and out of their pockets in a glimpse toward home in the concrete. Hambone, Hambone, where you been? All around the world and back again. Hambone, Hambone, what you do? Fixed you a sandwich, eat some food. <laughs> I would love to answer your question. I think like one of the things that I noticed in some of the early editions of William Faulkner's 
the sound and the fury were the way that he would use color to illuminate different voices on the page. Me using green is a, it, it, in this book was my way of kind of like using a sort of like a wounded kind of contrasting quizzical like like quizzical street voice but this is a subject to debate with a lot of my of my audience in Tacoma there are a lot of readers who love me who think that I'm a little too modernist like we have the debates about Melvin Tolson and Melvin um like like Melvin Tolson is a little bit too obscure for the church ladies um, in who, 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 who read at the Columbus Tea Room or at the Fish House. And not to say that they, they don't like obscure, but they're just a little bit too obscure for them. But like, I like some of the, the ways that, that, that Tolson can create something that you don't know what he's saying, but you know he's saying it well. <laughs> um, is that that conservatism, that conservative ethos coming up again, do you think? Yes. And I've been thinking about that a lot because you look at the big, th the, like, the big three in it, figures in black conservatism. You look at like Ralph Ellison, Albert Murray, and Zora Neale Hurston. And they still kind of have a certain importance, a lot of importance, and they're still very important to me. But if you look at their lives, Ralph Ellison was so pissed off by conservatives that by 1984, he voted for Jesse. Albert Murray was run out of conservative spaces for saying that the blues history is a primarily an African-American idiom. He wasn't saying that white people couldn't play the blues. He was, he was basically saying that he couldn't go to Egypt and claim that the klezmer came from, from Mobile, Alabama. And from that, he was, he, was, he was tart of pariah. And if you look at Zora Neale Hurston, who did her graduate studies on Milton, whose books that even William Faulkner called modernist masterpieces, who had the most, some of the highest standards of any American writer in the 20th century. You can't, you couldn't tell me that she could, that she would suffer Candace Owens for a second. <laughs> All right, let's bring in uh, another artist because I hear Peter Tosh 
downpresser man in the apocalypse comes to the detention center. <laughs> <laughs> it's some. Um, my daughter loves that song, by the way. My my daughter Ella, she's nine, and she says, "Can you play downpresser man?" I love that song too. My grandmother taught me that song. My grandmother, my grandmother preferred Tosh to Bob Marley. She thought that the Whalers were best when they were all together. But as their solo work, she preferred Marley. I would love to read the poem. I would love to hear the poem. Let me get it for you. True believer, look for the detention salts in the barren morning cages with the final seal. In soot, a river that watches away the swills that took place in the water. Look for the sun as it collapses into dirt licks, sprinkles into hail with compounds and fences. The steel-headed trail will be gone to the gateway. The raven will ride the Cody to deliver their kinfolks in the keys tossed and burned. It will be burning arcs with homes, tidings, and kinfolks in the blinding nothing sky. The unseen will deliver while id once denied in the peril of what has been visible. Our ship would have sailed in spite of their journey. Blue ferrymen will toil in new lit lakes. Looks will pass as vision for unseen eyes and fences will give boards but no shelter. The sea will be filthy. The sea will be burning. The beast will move in buildings above the dirt and the captured hour come to last. The beast will inhabit the image of man that, circus, that circuits and troubles all sight. The last shall be the first in the final seal night. True believer, where are you going to run to? True believer, where are you going to go? True believer, it will start with assault. Thank you. This is fascinating because the edition, the, the version that you read is different from the version that I was reading along in the book. So I'm thinking you're reading from maybe a previous draft of the poem. And for those who have the book, um, to hear you and, and then to, and, and there were some audio problems with some of it. There was some, a little bit of a dropout, but then to read it, um, you can begin to see what your editing process is like, which might be the good follow-up question. Tell us um, about how a poem starts and about how a poem ends up in a book. Let me first say that, that, um, that I noticed that, that you're right. It's, um, I did read my prior edit and I, I just realized that now and I, and I apologize for that. But from your question, it takes me a while. I'm unsure of everything that I write, I need an editor. And sometimes I sit on something for like two to three months. Sometimes I sit and I just read it and I kind of kind of like run the scales of it, see how it sounds, see if something doesn't, see if something sounds false. I lean on my editors a lot and I lean on my editors input. input. Like I've been very fortunate to have Christina whose book, Still Clutching Maps, is startling. And 
Christina Butcher. Christina Butcher, yes. And she's your publisher, Blue Cactus Press. Yes, she's my publisher and she's my editor, and she's an excellent poet. Like and like she is in I mean her her writing is in the similar sort of like modernist vein. So I lean on her a lot. I hope that answers your question. And I apologize for reading a prior draft. No, I mean, everything happens for a reason, you know. And um, it was fascinating to hear that and also a good opportunity to learn about your process because I think these opportunities to talk to her, I mean, that's part of the fun of going to a festival or a conference. You know, the panel happens or the reading. And then you hang out at the bar or at the restaurant or at the cafe after. And, uh, you know, if that life is vibrant, after between the events that um, that says a lot about what's happening at the festival or at the conference read us if you'd be so kind value village love poem i would be so glad value village love poem old jackets don't fit love but did they ever insignias and hats fade in the cycles of discount trend racks Jerseys and spanks contract arbitrarily and scarfs hollow in the Klieg lights without the heads that gave them meaning. Age and price may dictate our shape, but wherever you are is the boulevard. Let me adorn you a crown of price check rosaries. Let my love be the alms that never signal for without you hoop earrings are metal. Extensions, just threads away from their orbit, away from their center and star. Let them price to infinity our posters and memories. Let them splice the hood to the meridians of invisibility. In my arms, you are never gone. My dear aroundaway girl, dance with me by the sail colors. Time may erase all style to memory, but the intercom is playing our song. <laughs> I'm trying to think if it was Libo or Dufu, my studies are, are fail me now, um, who said uh, that the role of the poet is to master the arts of poverty. And that seems to be, yeah, I see you nodding your head on that one. In a Value Village love poem, that would kind of tip it off, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And also, I grew up on Quiet Storm, um, 90s R&B radio. It had its aesthetic limitations, but in regards to content and form, the idea of a good love song still was, was, was something that was embedded in me listening to that. Were you listening to Cedric James? I was listening to Cedric James. I was also listening to to a lot of Luther and Anita Baker. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to Alexander O'Neill. And again, it's it, you're talking about pop forms, so there were there were limit there were limits, there were aesthetic constructs, but the content like there's still something that really stirs my heart about a, a good R&B love song. Uh, Anita Baker. Yeah. Are you optimistic that U.S. America will become a stable, multicultural democracy 
Or did Trumpism kill all that and simply reflect the inherent structural white supremacy in the core of its greasy heart? I have two voices that are on my shoulders. The first voice is the voice that I, I told my grandfather. I said, you are 101 years old. You have ran your race. It is my t time to pick up the baton and try to show the best verities of America and try to have faith in people who have the best verities of America. And a lot of those people I see in Tacoma and a lot of those people I see in Bellingham right now. I see a lot of people trying and that gives me faith. And I make the caveat with that second voice coming in, in uh, my other shoulder that almost none of the people that give me faith in America are Twitter verified. <laughs> Man, I, you're preaching to the choir on Twitter. I mean, I, I will never figure out how it works. I will, I'm there, I check it every day, I see it on my phone, but I just will not be a good tweeter. I've had some good exchanges, but uh, I, I'm, not I'm not even gonna take the time to learn. Uh, but that's a whole other story. I am, well, I'll save that for the end, but I, there's one last, one last thing, and it might, be, it might be pretty big, so leaving it to the end is probably a good idea. In the first poem you read, you called yourself a ghetto nerd, and you have written before of the extreme abuse that you suffered that to most people in this culture, it would just be unspeakable. And yet you've written about it. You've been very clear about it. I love um, your candor. Uh, Ginsburg said, candor ends paranoia. And you are living proof of that. How has poetry helped you to overcome? The extreme shit that you've gone through. I'll just leave it at that. Um, poets have, poetry, poems, and great poets have. Um, and I honor that because they, because it gave me a language to process and to make art out of, and to, and to take some of the pain that I've gone through and to make it something that can be something that's helpful for other people. Um, Ellison and Albert Murray talk about um, the blues sensibility in art, about how the blues artist is talking about the most agonizing thing, subject matter, but they are doing it in a way that is professional and consummate and sturdious and disciplined and dedicated to their craft. And um, that 
so poetry and finding my own way in regards to poetics was my way of 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 dealing with that um poetry systems with with notable exceptions um have not i tried to fit um in in into scenes um i can't i have to be me i have to be on the side in the, in the peripheral i have to i can give myself to people and organizations and artists who are doing constructive things and who are doing who are who are doing helpful things and stimulating things like yourselves but i mean it's i look at portland and seattle and i despair a lot of the time i know that portland and seattle are not the liberal world to the extent that they are scares me yeah oh man we could talk for a couple more hours about that um but i, I hear you i feel you um you know sam sam said you barely pass for a white guy um, but that barely is is huge. And so um, to have this kind of perspective and to hear exactly what you're saying and know exactly what it is says says a lot. And I have to tell you, your eloquence and your articulation are really world-class, and I really admire that. And I'm grateful that you granted me this time to get a deeper look at your work. I mean, it's it's a very intimate act to hear you talk about it, to, to, to hear you be so open about all of it, and to hear it culminate in what I think is a real shamanic act of turning the shit that you've been handed and turning it into food. It's just a real testament to the depth of your soul and your spirit. And I'm grateful to call you my friend, and I thank you for your time. I thank you, and I'm still working on getting better, and I'm glad to have done this interview and um and just wanted to say just thank you to so many people in your community for what you've for what you're for what you all are doing for reading arts and letters thanks man Cascadian Prophets is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.